Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime Aficionados. This is episode 13, (laughs) and it's titled, You're Grasping at Straws. You'll see why, because Ted Bundy's a fucking schmarmy little bitch. This episode is, I thought it was quite funny to make because... Bundy's panicking at this point because the police are breathing down that motherfucking neck. Um, His car is getting picked out of lineups. The detectives are getting like gas receipts, literal receipts, you know, to pin him to crimes. His girlfriend, Liz, is talking to the cops. Like it's, it's wild. It's a wild ride from start to finish. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and enjoy it as much as I had fun making it. As always, if you would like more True Crime Aficionados content, please check out the Instagram at True Crime Aficionados. You can also check me out at Patreon, support your girl. This is a one woman show. Also, there's some bonus content coming out on the Patreon soon. So go ahead, subscribe, follow, like, do all you need to do. And yeah, (laughs) let's get into it. On Monday, September 1st, Detective Jerry Thompson drove to Murray, Utah. He had with him Polaroids of Ted Bundy's Volkswagen that were taken after his arrest when the police executed the search warrant on his apartment and car. Additionally, Jerry Thompson had over two dozen photographs of individual males, and the stack of photos was the mugshot of Ted Bundy from his arrest on August 16th. Detective Thompson was going to show these photos to survivor Carol Durange. Detective Thompson showed Carol the Polaroid pictures that he took of Bundy's car, and Carol looked at the photos and said, quote, it definitely resembled the car. Carol also described a large tear in the rear passenger seat of the car that she was kidnapped in as, quote, being like the one that she saw in the photos. However, Carol said that she would like to get a closer look at the car just to be certain, which, I mean, babes, trauma trauma you want to go back to the car where you were almost murdered but you know good for her so detective thompson then handed carol a stack of the mugshots, like you know the big pile that also had ted bundy's photo in there and asked carol to look through the photos and if any of the men looked like the guy who abducted her like officer roseland remember that bitch and kevin sullivan writes somewhere in the midst of this Detective Thompson watched as she took Bundy's photograph out and placed it on her lap. She didn't say anything, but continued to look at each one until she finished and handed the stack back to him, minus Bundy's picture, which she was now holding in her right hand. I don't see anyone in there, she told the curious detective, who immediately asked her about the picture she was still clutching. Oh, I forgot about this, she told him as she handed it back. I don't know. It looks something like him. I really don't know. I can't be sure, but it does look a lot like him. Before Detective Thompson left, he asked Carol Durant to attend a police lineup to identify her attacker. She said yes. So Detective Thompson is like, you know, probably in his car on the way back to the office, like, oh my gosh, she was like lingering on Bundy's photo, like holy shit. And when he got back to his office, he contacted Detective Ira Beal of Bountiful, Utah, who was investigating the disappearance of Deborah Kent, the young woman who Ted Bundy kidnapped from the play the day that you know, Carol Durange escaped. So Detective Beale drove out to Salt Lake City to get a copy of Ted Bundy's mugshot. 
And he wanted to show this mugshot to a woman named Raylan Shepard, who, if you remember, was the drama teacher at the high school who noticed Ted Bundy being like a fucking creep in the hallways, trying to get people to go identify a car. Like, ugh. Yeah, criminal mastermind. Anyway, so when Raylan Shepard saw Bundy's mugshot, she nodded in agreement and said that if you added a mustache to this picture, the man would definitely look like the creep who she spoke to the night that Carol Durant was attacked and the night that Deborah Kent disappeared. So on September 8th, so a week later, Mike Fisher, the investigator from Colorado, called Detective Thompson in Utah to tell him that he had literal receipts that were very incriminating for Ted Bundy. Mike Fisher said that not only did he get confirmation that Ted Bundy was in Colorado, a state that Ted Bundy claimed he had never been to and he didn't know anyone and you know, that dumbass lie. This stupid bitch Bundy purchased gas at or near locations where the victims had disappeared on the dates that they went missing. Like, I've never been to Colorado. Okay, then why'd you buy gas in Colorado near where these victims disappeared on the day they disappeared? Like, make it make sense. He's so bad at crime. So Detective Thompson said, quote, it was those gas receipts placing him so close to all those places where the girls disappeared. There just wasn't any way in my mind that it wasn't him. Mike Fisher later found even more damning evidence that led him to believe Ted Bundy was responsible for the string of murders and disappearances that he was investigating in Colorado. So Mike Fisher got his hands on copies of gas receipts from the local like Standard Oil Company. It was like the gas station at the time. And literally the top gas receipt like on the top was from a gas station that Mike Fisher knew like he had been there before in a town called Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And it was dated January 12th, 1975, which it was the same day that Karen Campbell went missing. And Ted Bundy had purchased gas on that day where guess what? That gas station was only 30 miles away from where Karen Campbell was last seen alive. And this solidified in Mike Fisher's mind that Ted Bundy was the killer that they had been looking for this whole time. Because, I mean, he literally got gas the day Karen disappeared at a gas station nearby to where she disappeared. But again, he had never been in Colorado. Okay, sure, Jan. And so now... Maybe you can guess from my laugh that we're going to check in with Liz a little earlier than we normally do, but we're we're checking in with homegirl Liz because shit is heating up. You know, Ted Bundy now has the state of Utah, the state of Colorado, and the state of Washington on that motherfucking ass. So... Of course, that means the police are going to start investigating those closest to him. And that includes our girl, Liz. So Liz Kendall, in her own words, like I can't even parse what she says because it's just wild. But in Phantom Prince, she says, Ted phoned me more than usual after our big breakup, but our conversations had a dreamlike quality about them. We both said that we loved each other and always would. We both acknowledged that we had an important effect on each other's lives, but we knew now that we would never get married and that our lives would grow in separate directions. The thought of never making love to him again. Remember, he fucks dead bodies, but okay. Um, Just remember why I'm gagging is because she wrote this book like while he was in prison on trial 
for murdering a 12-year-old girl and two sorority sisters in Florida. Like, his crimes were well-known. He had fully, like, fucking confessed on the phone to her. And she's writing this book with that knowledge. Like, the thought of never making love to him again, of never window shopping with him on the Ave, of never having family tickle fights again left me undone. Ma'am, you know he's a pedophile. Why are you writing this book like this? You know what I mean? It's fucking weird. Like, I feel like she wrote it knowing that he probably was gonna read it in prison and like, I still love you, but like, why do you still love a pedophile? Why do you still love a serial rapist? Why do you still love a serial killer? Like, girl, go to therapy and cut this shit out. It's fucking weird. So she also says, one day in September, I ran into Ted's former landlady, Frida, in a supermarket. She asked me if I had heard from Ted lately, and I told her that we had broken up, but he still called me. The funniest thing happened, she began in her German accent. I'm not going to pretend to do a German accent. A woman detective was by the other day asking about Ted. Yeah, they thought he might have something to do with those girls that were missing last year. Isn't that silly? I told the woman what a good boy he was. He always helped me. Are you sure she was really a detective, I asked? Oh yeah, she showed me her identification before I invited her in. The next morning, while everyone else in the office was on break, I called the King County Police Department and asked to speak with Hergschmeyer. The man who answered told me that Hergschmeyer no longer worked in that division. As briefly as possible, I explained what had happened last fall and about the woman detective who had been asking questions about Ted. Oh yeah, we're just cleaning out our files and going over some old information before throwing it out, he told me. I knew he was lying. Like, here's my thing. They're in the middle of a fucking serial murder investigation. Do you think that you, Ted Bundy's fickle ass long-term partner, that you're going to call up the fucking police station while they're in the middle of a serial murder investigation and just tell you everything that they know? Get fucked. Like, the fucking privilege of it all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the police and demand some answers. Like, bitch, fucking take a nap. Like, why are you... Why are you feeding over this dusty ass nigga? Like, what are you doing? Ugh, just stop prying and let them do their jobs that they barely know how to fucking do. Anyway, she's so wishy-washy. Like, why would they risk telling her a goddamn thing? Anyway, so she said, can I talk to the woman detective for a minute? The detective came on the phone and told me her name was Kathy McChesney. Once again, I went over the story of my calls to the police and the results. She told me she'd been planning to call me. She asked if I had spoken with Ted lately. When I told her I had, she asked if he had told me that he had been arrested after trying to evade an officer. When? August 16th. He was arrested and charged with possession of burglary tools. I looked down at my desk calendar. August 16th was the day I had gone to the Bundy's cabin. That was the night I had kept calling. Would you be willing to talk to me further? McChesney asked. We could arrange to meet after you get off work. I'd rather do it right now, I told her. I said I'd be at her office as soon as possible. Like, literally leaving the middle of her workday. She has a child to provide for. You're just leaving work early to go talk to the police. Okay. Okay. So, she fucking leaves work. I told my boss that something had come up and asked if I could leave for the day. He took one look at me and said, I don't think you should drive anywhere until you feel better. Is there somewhere I could drop you off? I appreciated the offer, but I couldn't ask him to drop me off at the police station. The office I was looking for had major crime unit above the door. I told the receptionist I wanted to see Kathy McChesney, and after a few minutes, a petite woman who was younger than I came through the door. Are you Liz? I'm Kathy. Come on in. She started the interview by telling me about Ted's arrest. She said that he was charged with possession of burglary tools, but that the things found in his car might be better used to bind or assault someone. She asked me what had prompted me to call the police. I went through the whole thing again. Every few sentences, I would stop and say, I know I'm wrong or I'm probably crazy. 
I was trying hard to lay out the things that bothered me in a straightforward way, but I was so twisted up with contradictory thoughts that I couldn't. Kathy seemed to understand what I was going through, I mean, aka she was doing her job. We talked about my relationship with Ted before I had begun to worry. She was surprised that Ted and I had been together since the fall of 1969 and that nothing had ever seemed wrong until July 1974. I think personally that Kathy probably was like, girl, you were, you were mad dumb for mad long. So she was surprised that Ted and I had been together since the fall of 1969 and that nothing had ever seemed wrong until July 1974 when the two women disappeared from Lake Sammamish. We talked about Ted stealing things and I told her we called off our plans to get married because of it. I asked her about the things found in Ted's car when he was arrested. She pulled a photo out of her steno book and looked at it. She asked me if I had ever known Ted to wear a ski mask. I hadn't, but I remember the day I bought a ski mask. Kathy asked me if I still had it, and I didn't know. She asked me to describe it, and I tried. Finally, she said, please don't tell anyone I showed you this, and she handed me the photo. Laid out on a flat surface were gloves, ropes, handcuffs, an ice pick, Ted's old brown gym bag, a crowbar, the ski mask, which wasn't mine, and a pair of pantyhose with eye slits cut in them. How horrifying it would be to see a man coming at you with that pulled over his face. I kept saying, oh God, over and over, not knowing whether I was praying or swearing. It's also not just any man coming at you with that. It's Ted Bundy, because guess what, babes? It was found in his crusty car. So Kathy wrote down a list of the dates and times, disappearances, and asked me to go home and think about it. If I could place Ted anywhere at any of those times, I could rule him out as a suspect in the case. Over the next few weeks, I spent a lot of time at the King County Police Department. I told Kathy about going through my canceled checks to figure out where we might have been on the date she gave me, but without any luck. I told her about the day I went through his gas receipts and about stealing the package of his canceled checks. She asked me to bring them in. When I brought the envelope with Ted's canceled checks, Kathy and I went through them one by one. She pulled out the same two checks I had wondered about last summer, the ones from the rental place in the surplus store. She asked me what I thought they were for. My guess was handcuffs from the surplus store and crutches from the rental place. But I had bought Ted's yellow raft from the surplus store, and maybe he had gotten something for the raft. I told her about calling the rental place to ask him about identifying the canceled check, and she told me the police could find out what he had bought with it. Kathy seemed amused that I had taken the checks. She told me she had been suspicious or jealous of men in her life, but had never gone so far as to steal their canceled checks. She obviously didn't realize how consumed by fear I had been. Not concerned, not suspicious, not jealous, but scared out of my mind. And yet she still kept dating him, kept fucking him, and kept him around her fucking child. So she wasn't that fucking scared. Like, I feel bad for Liz until a point. Because it's like, you have the self-awareness to be like, I was so afraid of this potential serial killer who I'm still hanging around all the time and fucking and giving money and help like, babes, shut up. As soon as I learned that Ted had been arrested, I called my mom and dad. <laughs> I called my mom and dad. I hated telling them, but I wanted to make sure they didn't get further involved. They had been inviting Ted over for dinner often and visiting him in Salt Lake City. Mom was the one who remembered that they had been in Seattle at the time one of the young women had disappeared. Friday night, May 31st, 1974, Ted had taken us all out for pizza, and when we got back to my house at 10 p.m., he was anxious to leave. He was supposed to meet us at my church the next day because Dad was baptizing Molly, but he didn't show up until the ceremony was over at about 3 p.m., two hours late. Kathy McChesney thought that this was interesting because Brenda Ball disappeared from the Flame Tavern in Seattle about 1 a.m. on June 1st. So, supposed to be at the baptism of her child, and he was out murdering, 
murdering people. So, you know, and yes, she still stayed like whatever. I just even if he wasn't murdering people, this was like an important event in her life. Like the, it's not a christening, a bap. What's the difference between a baptism and a christening? They both involve water, right? I'm not religious, whatever. Some, some religious thing for her kid. And he was just like, deuces. So Ted continued to call me occasionally because things were so strained with us already. I didn't feel as if I had to act normal. He asked me once if I could send him money. I had loaned him money before, but I told him that I couldn't spare any more now. He wanted to talk about us and how we could have avoided some of the mistakes we made. I didn't have much of an appetite for that kind of discussion, so he did most of the talking. Always after he called, I felt emotionally blitzed. (laughs) This couldn't be the same man I was talking about with the police. She was actively talking to the police and then like having phone calls with him. Like It's just... Is it compartmentalization? Like, it just seems like it's so messy. Aren't you tired? Like, I'm tired. Just Okay, anyway. So here's the tea. One day, Kathy asked me again what I knew about Susan Phillips, Ted's old girlfriend from San Francisco. And Liz here is using a pseudonym. She's been called like Marjorie. She's also been called Diane Edwards. So I'm just going to go with her Susan name in the book. So Kathy McChesney is asking Liz about Ted's like first girlfriend, you know. He had made a business trip to San Francisco in the summer of 1973 for the Republican State Committee. He had looked her up, but he told me it just proved you can never go back. Kathy had a funny look on her face. Um, we've talked to Susan and to one of Susan's girlfriends. Ted and Susan were engaged around Christmas 1973. I didn't understand. She spent Christmas here in 1973, Kathy said. They were planning to get married. She also said that she visited Ted here for a while in the summer of 1973. I was speechless. (laughs) I was trying to remember Christmas 1973. I had gone to Utah as usual. Ted told me he was going off skiing with some classmates. He had taken me to the airport, but he wasn't going to be back in time to pick me up. He had my car, so when I got back to Seattle, I was homebound until he got back. I had been cleaning my oven New Year's night when he appeared. He was so happy to see me and so full of loving words that I teased him about having a guilty conscience. We went out to the sandpiper, the tavern where we met, and we necked in the back booth. That son of a bitch! Kathy told me that Susan had been in Seattle for a week in August that same year. I looked at the calendar on my checkbook. That was the week after Ted wrecked my car. So he's out here hooking up with other women, getting engaged with other women, using her car, probably like, you know, not taking care of it, obviously, because he fucking wrecked it. Like, girl, are you sure? I asked Kathy. Susan sent me a picture that was taken by her friend. Do you want to see it? He had his arm around her. He looked very handsome. She was attractive, but not the gorgeous Naga I had imagined. I stared at the picture. They looked so happy. Well, I said, that proves he's a dishonest lover, but it still doesn't make him a murderer. (coughs) I was both grateful and resentful that Kathy had showed me the picture, wishing I didn't know, but at the same time wanting every detail. According to Kathy, Ted and Susan had a wonderful visit in the summer of 1973 and talked about marriage. But when Susan returned at Christmas, Ted was distracted to the point of being unpleasant. During a conversation about abortion, he had yelled at her and frightened her. When she returned to San Francisco, Ted didn't call her right. When she called him, he was cold. At last, she told him to forget about getting married, and he said that was fine with him. I asked her if I could have the picture of Ted and Susan together. At first, she said no, but then she relented. Now you have to promise that you'll never tell anyone. She made me a copy, and I went home with the picture of that son of a bitch and Susan in my purse. So, first of all, first of all, first of all, so many questions, comments, concerns. She saw like a picture of his murder rape kit and that's not the photo 
that she was focused on. The takeaway was that he was with another woman, like, years before. That was her takeaway. Like, he was literally arrested, lying to her about it. And she was like, can I have this photo of him and his, like, other girl? And not only that, Kathy said, like, hey, don't tell anyone about this. Sis made a whole book about it. Liz, sis, we got questions. What you doing? In the days after Ted Bundy's initial set of arrests, he was paranoid as fuck. I mean, as he should have been, because now this crusty bitch was finally on law enforcement's radar. On September 10th, two days after Carol DeRanche was shown Bundy's mugshot, Bundy was being watched by police officers who set up a stakeout across the street from his apartment in Utah. The detectives watching Ted Bundy noted, quote, the subject seems extremely nervous, walking up and down the sidewalk. Now I'm back to the Volkswagen. <laughs> in The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson, he writes, Ted made it a point to tell all of his acquaintances that he thought the police were watching him, all because he explained of the junk which had been found in his Volkswagen when he was arrested. And, you know, again, the junk that this stupid, crusty bitch is referring to as his scary-ass murder kit. The one that included, you know, fucking garbage bags, rope, ice pick, the stockings with eye holes cut out. Like, never gonna be gaslit into believing that it was anything other than a murder kit. So, Richard Larson continues and says, The stakeout officers watched in frustration as Ted carried out a complete cleanup slash fix-up of the Volkswagen. He scrubbed it inside and out, including the trunk space, He installed a new rear backrest, replacing the one that had the long rip along the top, you know, that was identified by Carol. And he touched up rusted spots, installed a new front bumper, and gave the bug a thorough wax job which darkened its color. Detective Thompson said, you know, what all of us were fucking thinking. Damn, you gotta wonder how much evidence he might have cleaned out of there. I mean, yeah, like, he cleaned the trunk of his car, bro, and like replaced it so it was nearly like unidentifiable. Also totally something that, you know, an innocent person would do, clean the inside of the trunk, scrub it, install a new back seat, like clean rusted spots. Wow. Like, okay, bro, sure. After the cleanup of the car and after their surveillance was called off, Ted Bundy sold his Volkswagen through a classified ad to a teenager in Utah named Brian Severson. I don't know, but he sold it for fucking $700. And Ted Bundy told his friends that he sold his Volkswagen. No, not because he's a suspect in attempted murder and attempted kidnapping investigation. No, silly. It was because he needed the money to pay off some debts and to help meet the cost of his new lawyer, like obviously. He then left that apartment and then moved to a smaller student apartment and an older house that was closer to campus. So totally all the normal things that you would do if you were innocent. So during that September, Detective Thompson, the Utah detective, he visited the law school where Bundy, you know, attended to check his class attendance and grade records and to interview some of his professors, you know, doing his job. And as he moved from place to place on campus, like into the law building, Detective Thompson became acutely aware that Ted Bundy was following him at a distance. Detective Thompson said, the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. Since when does a suspect start trailing a detective who's checking him out? Which, yeah, like that doesn't make any fucking sense. Like he's so innocent that he's going to start following the detective around. Like what the fuck? 
So and clearly he's not a fucking criminal mastermind because he got caught like immediately. So, and this is from The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson. Then as Thompson was leaving the building, entering a covered alcove, he heard Bundy shout from behind him, Jerry, hey, hey, Jerry. Thompson turned and watched Bundy approach. I'm sorry to have to put you in all this trouble. No, it's okay, Ted, responded a slightly perplexed Thompson. But then you get paid for doing your work, Bundy added. Jerry, you seem to be a pretty good detective. I think I'm a damned good detective, said Thompson soberly. But Jerry, you're just grasping at straws, continued Bundy. There was mirth on his face as he continued. Just straws, Jerry, but you keep at it, Jerry. If you find enough straws, maybe you could put a broom together. Ah, <gasps> the way I would have bitch slapped this crusty hoe. <gasps> He's literally taunting the police. He's literally... Maybe if you get enough straws, you can put a broom together. Man, break that broom over your ass. And now our homegirl Liz, you know, she's still at this point meeting with the cops on a regular basis. Like she's in and out of that Seattle Police Department. Liz is, she's besties. So she says, I was missing a lot of work. My boss told me that he didn't know what was bothering me, but whatever it took to work out was okay with him. I mean, honestly, her boss sounds like he, I mean, he probably wanted some because no tea driving her around and shit and like telling her to take off work because capitalism is real as fuck. It runs deep and there's no way that this bitch was like, sure, miss work. Like, okay, you should get some. One of the people at work pulled me aside and asked me if money would help with whatever was so heavy on my mind. He offered me a couple of hundred dollars, no strings attached. She had men all on her. She was just thirsty for Bundy. This kind of unconditional support meant a great deal to me. Several weeks after my first talk with Kathy McChesney, she told me that detectives were coming to Seattle from Salt Lake City and would like to talk to me. I was becoming more and more agitated as the police investigation heated up. I mean, you call them, boo. A few days later, her partner, Detective Bob Keppel, homie, called me to tell me that the men from Salt Lake City were here. I went downtown and was introduced to Ira Bill from the Bountiful Police Department and Jerry Thompson from the Salt Lake City Police. So, how are you today? He asked me. Fine, I answered mechanically. Then I changed my mind. Well, really nervous, actually. How come? I'm so scared by what's happening. Sometimes I think Ted is involved. And then sometimes I just know I'm making a terrible mistake. I know Ted's not capable of murder, but I get these awful feelings that it's true. So if you know he's not capable, then how do you get awful feelings that you know it's true? Also, ma'am, you didn't know that he was engaged until a couple of weeks ago or that he was arrested and now you do. So like, you know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't make sense. Like she didn't know he was engaged and then found out. Didn't know he had been arrested, then found out. It's not adding up. Not adding up. (sighs) Thompson was looking at me as if he couldn't believe it. (laughs) He probably was like... Bro, hadn't anyone explained to him how unsure I was? Nah, they probably were looking through, you know, that little interrogation room, how there's like the two-sided mirror. They probably were on the other side. Like, okay, okay, let's see. Let's see how Jerry deals with this. He started to set up his tape recorder. You don't mind if we record this, do you? Mind? Yes, I minded a whole bunch. He told me in an irritated way that to interview me without it made his job more difficult. I didn't care. I refused to have what I said recorded. He started the interview by telling me that Ted was a strong suspect in the November 8th attempted kidnapping of Carol Durant from a shopping mall in Murray, a suburb of Salt Lake City. 
This was the case I had read about in the paper so long ago, and Kathy and I had discussed it at great length. I told him that the Durant case had caused me to ask my bishop to call the police in Seattle and ask them to call the Salt Lake City police. We went over everything I discussed with Kathy, from the length of my relationship to Ted to our sex life. It wasn't getting any easier to talk about. I don't know why she keeps putting that in the book. I don't care. I don't know. Do other people care? Like, was it hard for you to talk about your sex life with Bundy? Whatever. Thompson asked me about the clothes Ted wore. In particular, whether or not Ted often wore patent leather shoes. I told him no. A couple of times during the interview, Thompson came back to the shoes. He was pretty big on patent leather shoes, eh? I couldn't have been clearer. No, not ever. After we talked for more than an hour, Thompson pulled out what looked like enlargements of driver's license photos. Do you know who these women are? He asked me. They were pictures of two young women, both of them blonde, both of them attractive. He was holding the pictures at arm's length from me. No. Who? I said. Sorry, can't tell you. I said, he answered. <laughs> I wanted to know, but he wouldn't budge. Kathy had asked me if I knew who Becky was. I didn't have any idea. It turned out she was a girl who had lived close to Ted in the U District of Seattle. They had gone out a couple of times and gone rafting once. You're kind of jealous, aren't you? Thompson said. <laughs> He's like having fun. I couldn't argue with him. The next day, Thompson and Beale came to see me. We sat in their car in the university parking garage and they asked me more questions. I had told Thompson that Ted had a fake mustache, that he had told me he wanted to see what he would look like with a mustache without going through the trouble of growing one. I described it as straight across and squared off at the ends. Thompson kept referring to it as droopy. I described it again as squared off and Beale handed me a composite sketch drawn after Carol Durant's kidnapping. The man in the drawing had a droopy mustache. No. It didn't look anything like this, I told them. Which, I mean, he could have just easily gotten another fucking fake mustache or like trimmed that one. It, you know what I mean? It's just stupid. Like, obviously there are multitudes of fake mustaches, but sure. Okay. Thompson asked me if I had ever known Ted to have a metal rod or a crowbar in his car, maybe with the handle tape. I did recall something I had not remembered in all of my hours of questioning by Kathy McChesney. One night, several years ago, Ted left my place to go home and study, but a little while later, I heard someone coming up the front stairs quietly as if trying not to be heard. Okay. <laughs> I stepped out into the hallway and it was Ted. He had an odd look on his face and he was retrieving a crowbar that had been under the radiator in the hall. The pockets of his coat were bulging and on an impulse... I reached into a pocket to see what was in there. He backed away quickly, but I had pulled out a surgical glove. I couldn't remember now how he had explained it, but I remember thinking how weird it was. I also told the detectives that Ted had taped the handle of my jack back in 1970 during the student riots. He told me to use it to protect myself if needed. Literally, he was creeping up the stairs of her home to get a fucking crowbar he had stashed somewhere so he can go out on foot looking to murder someone. He has surgical gloves, like, and she still doesn't know. It, it may mean it's not him. Ma'am, you're dumb. You know what I mean? Like, didn't telling that story things like click and fall. People are slow, like messy, simple, and goofy, honestly. Even though it was a sunny September day, it was freezing in the parking garage. I was calmer that day, but I was still nervous and cold. Thompson and Beale sat in the front seat, and I was alone in the back. At one point, Thompson turned to me and asked me how I felt about Ted now. Good question. 
Thompson, good question. You know, asking the thing we all want to know. Now, what had changed? I didn't know any more than I had before I talked with the detectives. I told him that I loved Ted very much and prayed and prayed that he wasn't involved in those murders, but I just didn't know. Like, <laughs> think about what she's asking the Lord for. Please let him not be involved in murders. Not like, please let him get a raise at work or, you know, please let him, um, any anxieties he have be calm. Please let him gain some confidence. Please let him succeed in his career path. Please let him not be involved in fucking murder. Okay, sis, like after a certain point when murder is involved in your like talks with Jesus, you need to do other shit. The statement turned up later in several books and articles about Ted as proof that I was a real flake. I mean, because you are a fucking flake. She wrote a whole book about being a flake. Thompson seemed exasperated with me. I shouldn't do this, he said, but because you've been so cooperative with me, I will let you in on something. He whipped out the picture that Kathy had already shown me of the things taken from Ted's car. I acted shocked. <laughs> now, what do you think, Thompson said. I just don't know, I told him. Detective Beale made some scrapings from the untaped end of my jack handle, telling me it could be old blood. They took the jack handle with them, gave me their phone numbers in Utah, and told me to call them, collect if anything came up, or if I had any questions. That night, when I got home from work, I found flowers from a florist. The card said... I'll love you forever. Ted, <laughs> Ted was calling me more and more often. He had been baptized into the Mormon church, he told me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He did the whole, I'm a God-fearing religious man. I can't possibly be connected to any crimes, which makes me wonder, like, most of these bitches are fucking criminals, criminales, like high key, high caliber crimes, high crimes. So he got fucking baptized into the Mormon church. And remember, she's Mormon too, whatever. She says, I could interpret this like most things that had happened lately in two ways. If everything was normal, it would mean he had found a Mormon woman to convert for. But if he was really involved in the crimes, it was the kind of thing a trapped man would do. Her first thought was like another woman though. Like again, her fixation on being the only woman in Ted Bundy's life. Why? He's nothing going for him. He's, he's ugly as hell. You know, ugly, crusty, dusty. He is barely attending law school. He never has a consistent job. He has no monies. He steals everything. He now also doesn't even have a fucking car. He just sold his car. So it's like, is the D that good? I mean, I guess crazy D is good, but like, ma'am. Go get other D. There's so much D in the world. Or P or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, anyway. One Sunday in late September, he called to tell me he was coming to Seattle. He said he was so broke that he was going to have to sell his Volkswagen and he thought he could get much more for it in Seattle. When we talked for about 15 minutes, I told him I wasn't feeling good and that I would call him back in a little while. So his story is changing again. He told his friends in Salt Lake City that he sold it to clear out some debts and to help pay for his lawyer. He's a lying liar who lies and he can't keep his fucking lies straight. But I read 10 books, so I keep track of all the lies. I called King County Police and asked the operator to have Kathy call me. When the operator hesitated about calling Kathy at home, I told her it was an emergency. Pushy. It's also not an emergency. You just spoke to Ted Bunny on the phone. Kathy told me that she couldn't advise me, but that if she were me, she would tell him not to come and that I knew he was being investigated. I called Ted back and told him I knew he had been arrested. What? Just for speeding, he told me, kind of laughing. It was really nothing. I went through a stop sign and the highway patrolman picked me up. No, 
I know that you were charged with possession of burglary tools. They're harassing me. I was just out driving. When he stopped me, he went through my car. I just had a bunch of stuff that I collected. He called it suspicious, and now they're out to get me. If it was just nothing, why did you run? I didn't run anywhere. His voice was trembling. Ooh, fun story. Uh, A few weeks ago, I had to put a white man in his place. This fucking bitch-ass neighbor of mine who tried to get loud with me, and I got in his face and yelled, fuck around and find out. Pointed my finger in his face. I was wearing a mask. I said, fuck around to find out. You stupid fake fraud bitch because he's impersonating a doctor. And he was shaking by the end of it. And now when he sees me, he shakes. And it replenishes my dopamine levels because don't take my kindness for weakness. I will fuck you up. I am unhinged and waiting to be unleashed on a unsuspecting uh, pocket king of a white man. Anyway, so Ted Bundy's voice is trembling. The police got all upset. That's all. I was just speeding, but he called it evading. Why did you have those things in your car? I asked him. Really, Liz, it was just an accumulation of junk. I had the rope from the raft in that brown bag, you know, and a crowbar. That's really handy for prying cars apart. (laughs) For For prying cars apart or like that. The search will never hold up in court. It was clearly illegal. Who who told you about it anyway? Ignoring his question, I asked him, what about the pantyhose? Oh, that. I wear that under my ski mask when I'm shoveling snow. It's left over from last winter. I'm really going to get mad. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk with some people here and tell them to leave me and my friends alone. I'm really ticked off. Who told you? I ran into Frida at the store and she told me a woman detective had contacted her. So I called the police. I'm calling Frida, he said and hung up. A short time later, he called me back. What did the police tell you? He demanded. Only that you had been arrested and charged with burglary tools. What did you tell them? He was so agitated, I felt sorry for him. (laughs) Only what I know. I was glad he didn't press me. He said he was going to call Anne Rule, a middle-aged woman he worked with at the crisis clinic. Shade and rude, a middle-aged woman. Why is every woman who she mentions in the book is like competition for her? Like, Ma'am, a middle-aged woman, uh, rude. Granted, Anne Rule did like, you know, like exaggerate her relationship with Ted Bundy for her book, but like, sis, she was motherly and he liked her very much. Again, rude. To meet her, you would think she was your average next door neighbor, but she made her living writing stories for crime and true crime detective magazines. She was also so close to the police that Ted apparently thought she would be able to tell him how much they knew. Again, he called me back this time frantic. I wish for a moment that I could hold him in my arms and assure him that everything was going to be okay. (laughs) And that's where we're going to leave it because I can't. My brain has had its fill of Ted Bundy for today. And we'll pick up next week with that phone call to Anne Rule. And again, read The Stranger Beside Me if you, you know, want a little little razzle-dazzle sneak peek of what I'm talking about. Pium, 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 pium. We are done. Episode 13, You're Grasping at Straws. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned next week for episode 14, but he's a law student <laughs> because everyone and their mother loses their absolute shit when Ted Bunny is arrested. But how he couldn't have because he's a law student. Um, he writes like some shitty poetry in, <laughs> in prison. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, A journalist, Richard Larson, speaks to Louise about his arrest, and it's fucking creepy as shit. Ted Bundy gets baptized into the Mormon church. It's just, 
It's crazy. Like, this is real. This is true crime. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like more of me, please head over to the Patreon where there is some spicy, exciting, extra content happening. And yeah, also if you want to support me because this is a one black queer woman project. So please, uh, if you are new to this, welcome. Uh, If you want to invite any of your friends, please send them over to True Crime Aficionados. Over 10 full episodes available for you to binge right meow. And as always, stay tuned for some purrs from my kitten Mimi, who is precious. Because why not? Keep your head on a swivel. Bye.